My name is Rob Ockenkloss, and this is the Holocene Podcast, where we seek knowledge from the most creative, adventurous, and bright among us. These are individuals that are storytellers, entrepreneurs, athletes, designers, and everything else in between. It is my job as the host to take what they've each learned in their own lives and codify their knowledge so that one can use their lessons in your or their own life. In this episode, I am joined by none other than Seth Mrazka. Now, Seth and I met when we were both at Collins, at This Is Collins, or WeAreCollins.com, in New York City back in 2017. And at the time he was president, at the time I was an intern. And since then, we became good friends, and he has become a mentor of mine that has helped me figure out the direction to head in life, and I have learned a lot of lessons from him along the way. And in this wide-ranging conversation, we talk about everything from habits and tricks and routines to how to form and build successful creative companies. Well, without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation between myself and Seth Mraska. Life is either an incredible adventure or it's nothing at all. Seth, thank you for coming on my show. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. So I always start off all podcasts with the same question, and that is, what is the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? Uh, well, what time is it? I mean, whenever you wake up. It's what time is it? I, I don't use an alarm, so okay. I usually uh, wonder what time it is. It's usually between 6.15 and 6.25. Oh, I, I, I thought, I now understand what you were saying, but like, you mean that? I mean, so, genuinely, so... <laughs> I wake up, I'm like, what time is it? So can you walk me through that process? Like how, how did you get to that point and what is your ethos behind that decision? Uh, well, in general, I'm a pretty routinized person. And so, um, you know, every day for, I don't know, years, just had my, my alarm was set for 5.45 or 6 between there. Um, and then it was actually once we got into this pandemic where I was like, I don't, I don't think I need an alarm anymore. And, uh, I stopped setting it and just started, you know, my body was conditioned enough. It was, it's one of those things where I thought I needed the alarm to wake up, but you, yeah. you don't, so you do it for so many, so many times. So, um, you know, I, I naturally will wake up between six fifteen, six thirty, and, uh, pre pandemic, I'd have a pretty set routine of going for a run and it's post pandemic. It's turned much more into what feels right morning activity and at some point in the day so you cut out about your last few words there um but i think we got what was coming through um and you and i from a previous conversation between us we talked about routine and uh you know how routines for most of us have been upended during this period right and so have you found yourself, because you were like me at some point, and now I'm not really like that where I would plan out most of my day the day before. I basically say, okay, I'm going to make sure I get everything done. I have meetings here. I'm going to go for a, a ride here or a run here. I'm going to eat then, try to do it. Um, and now I'm kind of just throwing that all away. Um, are you on the same page? Yeah, I think everything for me used to be time part based. I will do this at this time. We'll do this at this time. You know, wake up at six, run to the gym, swim, office by eight lunch 1130, uh, you know, snack at three, leave work at six, like it was very time part based. 
I think now it's become, there's still that sense of routine, but it's more of, um, uh, it's making sure that I still get those things done. They just don't need to be so time part. So, um, still getting, still getting up early, but now I'll spend an hour reading in the morning before I start doing any work and I'll go for a run after lunch. Um, you know, it's just, it becomes much more of, uh, starting to do things when they feel right rather than when you think you're supposed to do them. Um, which has been a, a great, a great exercise for me. And so do you find that when you just say, I, obviously you're probably not going to travel anytime real soon, but eventually when you go back to New York, uh, do you think you'll set an alarm when you switch time zones? Or do you think your body is, is kind of conditioned enough to, that it knows the time to, to sleep to, to kind of duration? Oh man. Uh, I don't know. Probably my default would be to set something just as a safety net. Yeah. It'd be curious to experiment though and like set a safety net for yourself and see if you actually wake up and see if your body is actually conditioned to wake up at a set time or like a circadian rhythm based or wake up or like conditioned to wake up after a certain duration. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I've done it with like all of a sit, like my safety net would be the last moment I can wake up. Yeah, and so sure. if it's yeah. before that, it's totally fine. Yeah. But, um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. There's certain things that I'd rather not risk when it comes to professional. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd have a hard time explaining it. why I really for this meeting. Uh, I wanted to see if uh, my body would wake up at the right time. time. <laughs> yeah, especially when it's like a major client and you're, you know, trying yeah, to exactly. win a contract. Yeah, I've been experimenting with instead of waking up at the same time, always sleeping the same duration. And mm -hmm. I did this experiment all of pretty much April, where I went to bed anywhere between eight p.m. and four thirty in the morning, and I always slept seven and a half hours, um, and amazingly the results were the same like regardless of when i woke up i always felt the same which to me was like very very powerful <laughs> yeah i can't tell you the last time i was up past 10 p.m that's amazing <laughs> i can't i just it, it's usually yeah like nine o'clock is like when i'm getting in bed so do you count yourself as a morning person generally then yeah yeah yeah, yeah usually up between you know 5 30 and 6 30 depending yeah. And it's even like, it's crazy. It's now it's happened on the weekends too, which has been kind of liberating. You know, you get up at 6.30 yeah. on Saturday morning and kind of got like this whole day to yourself. Yeah, I, I've, been, I've been playing around with that more. And I, I basically, uh, my mind shuttles between the two ideas. It's like, I want to wake up early every day because I love watching the sunrise. Like I love morning, like facet exercise. I love uh a lot of those things right especially on like a sunday like going out on a ride sunday morning when no one else is outside it's it's one of my favorite things especially in new york right and, and here in seattle it's kind of the same thing but um part two of that is that sometimes i i i get in a groove when i'm working and sometimes that groove will just take me to four in the morning and so i i think i'm trying to find the balance of i think it's reasonable for me to assume that most days i'll wake up at the at, at sunrise or around that time but occasionally, sometimes you just have to be like, you have to get something done or you just like find yourself inspired to keep working. And I think that I've, I used to be, I used to be so OCD about it. Like, oh, I have to pick one or the other. And then like, I learned like, it's okay every once in a while to be like, if your body or your mind is like, let's get this done. I, I have it. You see the vision. If you go to bed, then your chances of you regaining that full vision are low. So you might as well just spend the time and get it all out there. Right. It doesn't throw, that doesn't throw you off for like. It does. It does. End. It throws me off. So I, that's what I was playing around with. It's like, so the missing piece was what's the perfect amount of sleep for me? Cause I think the problem is I tend to oversleep. If I, if I stay up till three, four in the morning, 
Um, and I was conditioned that way because uh, when I was in school, in engineering school, like the amount of work I had to do on top of classes and extracurriculars was obscene. And so I wouldn't go to bed before two most nights. And then three days a week I had classes, no, all five days a week I had classes at 8 a.m. or 7.30. So like I was sleeping maybe four and a half to six hours during the week. And during the weekends, like I would just sleep until I woke up. I'd be like, okay, body needs to reset. But as I became older and started doing more research about sleep, I realized that it's not like a it's not like a bank I can like build up a savings account and then use it like it's something you have to consistently hit if you want good results. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I definitely could have rearranged my day to get the work done on time and go to bed on time and I probably would have been better off overall, but those are things I think you learn. Also when I'm 18, 19, 20 and I was drinking that much caffeine like uh, didn't matter. You're also a little more resilient. You bounce back a lot quicker. Yeah. I mean I when I first started working at Collins when I met you when I was uh, 20 just turned 23 right um i was that way i was still drinking a lot of coffee but i i honestly haven't had caffeine now in about a year and a half like i haven't had a single not even decaf tea like no caffeine whatsoever um and that has helped my sleep more than anything else uh, I, mean, I do miss coffee dearly like i will, mm-hmm. I, will admit that. I do miss like a good green tea but um do you, do you have a routine with like a coffee or food or anything like that in the morning? Yeah, uh, pretty much every morning, again, wake up, uh, French press, cup of coffee, read my book. Yeah. Um, and it's more, that's more for the routine. I don't really get like a buzz or a for sure. caffeine kick yeah. from it. Um, and, you know, I, I, I can have days where I have it, I have days where I don't. There's for it's sure. not like a, a so, dependency yeah. of sorts. Um, it's not a crutch, but it's yeah, it's more of the comfort of the the routine and and pacing, I guess, of a, of, a, of my morning. Got it. So, kind of shifting subjects slightly, and and this will loop back around. So, I just learned before we started recording that you grew up in Texas, and I didn't know that. I for some reason I thought you were an East Coast kid like me. Um, no, grew up in Dallas, Texas. You don't have any semblance of a Southern accent whatsoever. <laughs> I, I slip, I slip a y'all in there every now and then. Yeah, you did. You would do that. And I was like, that's kind of strange. Like, I don't know why uh-huh. he's saying that. Um, but, uh, what, what drove you to go to New York from Texas? Uh, oh, college. Um, so I grew up in Dallas, Texas. Uh, always felt a little small town for me. Um, and, uh, I, I just a roundabout way of explaining, but throughout middle school and high school, it's very much into BMX biking. Um, had a lot of friends that turned pro. I, uh, used to travel around with them and started documenting, uh, you know, competitions and shooting for magazines and kind of photography was a hobby while I was, you know, pursuing BMX. And then about my junior year in high school, I broke my leg, um, shattered in three places, BMX biking. Holy but shit. kind of put me yeah. out of commission for a while. And so I really leaned into photography and really started photographing and, you know, going on a competition circuit and, and shooting my friends and started getting, you know, free products and featured like, you know, photographs featured in magazines and with companies. Um, really got drawn into into photography. Um, moved into being the, the actually president of our photo club um, in, in my high school. And so I started looking for colleges that had photo programs. Um, I looked at uh, some that were more pure art-based, you know, like a BFA, like a, a RISD. Um, but I also wanted to have a uh, um, 
a more rounded education experience, I guess, something that had a little more of a liberal arts degree too. Yeah. Um, and so I came across NYU and I was naive. I only applied to one college. I only applied to NYU and uh, thankfully got in and ended up, uh, ended up going to New York City. What was that like? Was that your first time in New York when you, when you moved in or did you go beforehand? I had visited a couple times before with my family, um, but you know, when you visit your family, you're staying in Times Square. near Times Square yeah. or uptown or someplace, and like you know, you're doing all the tourist things. Um, and so, no, New York, like moving there was my first, like really, just kind of I'd call it a culture shock, you know, within your own country. Um, I was young; I was 17 years old when I when I moved there. Um, this is pre smartphone pre you know gps on your phone yeah it was overwhelming i mean i didn't know anybody i uh, didn't have any friends facebook was you know still in its infancy um and and uh still to this day um we liked the same band and so i wrote him i was like hey we're both going to nyu and we have similar interests and that budded a friendship that we that we started to, to kind of communicate before college and and so that helped but you know it's jarring i remember I go on the subway and I ended up in Queens multiple times. I call my mom and she'd have to like map quest and kind of do turn by turn directions on the phone, like walk back over to this street and go back into the city. So it was jarring, but I think, uh, in many ways kind of accelerated, um, you know, range of like curiosities and starting to, you know, even just working professionally in the photography world, totally. yeah. you know, 17, 18 years old, kind of fast tracked what I think I would have experienced elsewhere. Yeah, that's something that I did the opposite. I grew up outside of Boston. I always like going there. Boston's nowhere the size of New York, but it's still like it's it's a it's a good sized city, right? I'd say it's more metropolis like than Dallas, right? Um, yeah. And I did the opposite. I, I moved out to the like the rural area of the western, you know, United States. But uh, I always I always I always thought it was curious because I I grew up spending a lot of time in New York. And I thought the cool place in New York to be was like the Upper East Side, right? Because that's like all I all I knew. I didn't even know that you know Greenwich Village or West Village or Tribeca or Soho existed. And then all of a sudden, when I'm in high school and I'm actually going down there and able to like go out on my own, like around your age, about to go into college, I was like, "Holy shit!" Like there are much cooler places in New York than this. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's quick to it's it's amazing. Like I've heard this from other NYU grads that I also know, like my friends that went there and thought they knew what New York City was, and then within a week of living in New York for the first time, they basically said, "Wow." I actually know what New York is now, and it's so much cooler than I thought it was. Yeah, it just and and the the for me, it, it was just you go for a run, and uh, the changing neighborhoods and the cityscape in two miles, you know, is more yeah. than I would see in twenty five miles in Texas. Is just yeah, just the sheer scale and the ability to really experience these different neighborhoods and cultures within like walking distance is, um, yeah, it was the exact opposite of Texas. And you always lived in Manhattan, right? You were never in Brooklyn or Queens or no, I lived in Brooklyn for a little bit. Okay. So I, uh, I, uh, lived in Manhattan for the first couple of years. Then my brother actually, um, a couple of years younger than me, he was set to go to Tulane and then actually came to visit me in New York. And he was like, I got to, I got to change. So <laughs> he, he, uh, applied to NYU and, and he got in too. And so once he moved to, to New York, we moved in together and That's we awesome. lived in Brooklyn for yeah. a little bit. We lived uptown then we lived back in Brooklyn, um, down in Soho. So saw a good range of the city. And you and your brother are really close, right? 
yeah, yeah, Christian, yeah, and right? I still can't, yeah, yeah, my brother Christian still can him is, you know, my closest friend, confidant, um, and we you know lived together for five, six years, yeah, and lived in the same city, and even I, I live in San Francisco, California now with my with my wife, and um, you know, it was that was a big move, but the distance didn't seem much because you could hop on a plane and be there in five and a half, six hours. Yeah, exactly. So, and now, and I would see him almost once a month. Uh, and so this, you know, the past couple, couple months of kind of being sequestered on an opposite coast, you really, really start to feel the distance. For sure. And then, uh, so what, what have he's, he's obviously in New York still during all this. Has he had any kind of, I was in Manhattan all of March, uh, when this stuff was going down and I experienced some things that I never thought I'd I'd want to see in New York, right? Or I never, never, never hope to never see in New York, right? I think it's the way to say it. And as he, as he kind of related some stories to you, he uh, actually, before they even shut down the city, I think like March fourteenth, him and his girlfriend packed up and drove out of the city. Smart. Um, so they've been, they've, they've been out the whole time. So they, they've missed the brunt of it. Where are they right now? They're down in Virginia. So nice. my, my folks are down in Virginia. Got it. Yeah. So they, they moved, moved from, from Texas. Texas. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And then your sister, where, where is she living during this? She's uh, with my parents as well. So my parents, um, they have a working farm and barn That's amazing. Um, yeah. on the property. And so my sister runs the barn, teaches lessons, um, and, uh, um, you know, was doing a lot more before, before we're all sequestered at sure. home. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, she runs the, the, she runs the family farm. So you, I remember you told me, and we talked about travel a lot when we first met each other. Uh, and you told me sometimes you'd visit your sister who was in London, I believe, and you'd just go for like 36 hours and then come back. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was it. She had an internship over there. So, yeah, I went over there and dropped her off and picked her up. But, you know, there was, those were short trips. Um, again, I think we got, I personally got into a very um, privileged and comfortable space where, you know, six, seven hours on an airplane wasn't, wasn't bad at all. Um, and it was really a matter of, you know, for me, the opportunity cost was, was much smaller than like, you know, anything of being able to spend time with family members or with friends or have an experience or see a new city. So I totally comfortable doing 36 hour trips. Sure. Yeah. And, and speaking of travel, this is probably the longest time you haven't been on a plane in quite a while, right? Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, years since probably yeah. I was, you know, <laughs> I don't know you, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, do you have Same. any outlook in terms of, you know, do you think that you're going to be as soon as you're able to, you know, travel again, go back home, see your family or see, you you know, something like that? Or do you think you're going to wait a bit? Um, I think as soon as there's uh, a semblance of like order and precautionary measures um, and you know, my wife is a pediatrician, and so she's also actively seeing you know, patients and, and kids every day. Yeah. And so, you know, there's part of the two, like, I don't, I don't know what she's exposed to, what I may be exposed to, and then sure. by default, yeah. you know, just hop on an airplane. Um, same time, don't want to hop on an airplane and break something back, you know? Yeah. So, um, but yeah, yeah, I think I certainly thought it was going to be a much shorter timeline when this first started. Uh, I was set to go to Scotland with my brother for his birthday, and uh, that was in June. And yeah. the, the reality came very, very swiftly that that wasn't going to be the case. So I'm not really sure when. 
Yeah, and, and I, I think like you've said to me, you plan on re replanning that trip eventually. Like it's not a trip you're not going to never, never take. It's just for sure. Just delayed. And same thing for me. Like my birthday is the end of Mar May. And uh, I've been wanting to hike the Tour de Mont Blanc around the base of Mont Blanc for years. And I was like, just going to mm. go solo, pack a single backpack, just do it, you know. Uh, and I'm really bummed I can't, right? But I look, I, I hope to do it later on the summer if things, if, if things could, are able to, right? Um, but who knows, right? I think this is going to change a lot of stuff and change work overall. And I've had, I think the, the majority of the topics I've had in conversations I've had in podcasts and meetings has been like, how will work change after this, right? And so now you run your own company alongside Matt Luckhurst, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the new company. And, you know, how do you see this whole pandemic changing how you two operate and have an office and do stuff like that? Is, is it gonna change a lot of it or are you gonna try to go back to mostly what you had before? Um, I think there's you know, a couple of layers to that. Um, I think design, as and and kind of the large umbrella of, of marketing and advertising um a, the the preconceived notion was that you need to be in the same space every single day to 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 have that happenstance of like just creativity and pushing ideas and developing ideas um and being forced to not be in that situation has been uh honestly you know, that's been the biggest challenge as a team you know you're used to having these quick conversations these like it, quick iterations and you know for as much as people tout video hangouts or, or Slack, you can't replicate the, uh, that, that, um, that kind of fundamental human interaction and like bantering of ideas off of one another. You just, yeah. it's hard to replicate. On the other side, I think it's made realize or made us realize that there are, there, there are certain things that, that can be done not in the same physical office. You know, I think, um, I never thought that I would endorse a, you know, work from home policy. Uh, but going through this makes you realize that, you know, you, you can be together and like get a lot of productivity done in, yeah, in physical sure. presence, but then space to actually develop and flesh something on your own isn't a bad thing. Mm -mm. Um, I've certainly found myself developing work much more quickly, Yeah, but getting stuck much more quickly. You know, sure. it's like a catch 22. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think coming out of this, there's certainly an implication to think about like what a more flexible work environment looks like. Um, and, and, you know, I think that benefits a lot of people, you know, we have a staff that, that is getting older. Two of our matches had his second kid, my, my business partner, another design director just had his first kid. And I think as you look at a workforce that, you know, has parents and, you know, also younger employees, Having a flexible from home policy, even one day a week, save 20% care. So think about those things and like yeah. having more extensible and benefiting the employees is something that we've definitely given more credence and thought to. Um, I think it's going to be standard nationwide. I think that's I think places that didn't have policies are going to be enacting a lot of them after this for sure. Um, what was the next thing you were to say? Um, Oh, I was going to say, you know, long term, though, it's really tough to understand. Uh, I've been listening, listening to a lot of um, one of the, the science reporters, of the New York Times, and he keeps talking about this idea, this hammer in the dance, you know, yeah. which is yeah. the hammer has come down very quickly, shut everything down. And this dance is like slowly reopening as you kind of see uh, what works and what doesn't. And I think that dance is going to be really 
um, important for business leaders to watch and to follow to make sure that you know we're we're reacting in a way that is right for our business, but you know also yeah. just for broader employee base and, and the for communities sure. we're in. Yeah, I think uh, the trends have started to, to reduce, and everything that you said is in line with what most people have been talking to me and, and talked about on this podcast and in other meetings. But I think the biggest trends I've seen is that I have a lot of friends from college and high school that worked as you know it's very common first few years a lot of kids go into consulting for like Bain, PwC, BCG, Ernst Young, right? And they were used to traveling every week. You know, they were used to being like, oh, we have to, you know, if you're going to consult, you have to travel there to be, get work done. And now I think that we've had two months of this, all these massive companies are realizing, hey, we don't have to spend, you know, $50,000 per year on travel for each employee for them to be productive, like on their couch in their room with their roommates, they're doing the same amount of work. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we're going to see this systemic change of people. I think we're going to have less of the let's travel to California from New York for that two hour meeting and then like that party afterwards. You know, it's like, let's do that. And then I think also um, my favorite part of it that you and I talked about ad nauseum many times before is that I have a few people that have finally realized that that pointless meeting they put on my schedule could have been an email because um, they hate Zoom. So mm -hmm. uh, that's my favorite thing that's come from all of this is that people are realizing like, wow, we didn't actually have to meet for an hour. You could have just sent a single email and now we're all on the same page or Slack, you know, like or. Mm -hmm. You know anything like that um but i i do see it interesting that you know the girl i was dating for about two years she worked at jp morgan chase and she told me you no know, like middle last year into the end of our relationship that that jp morgan was shuttering a lot of their offices then and because they realized that um you know they're like either move to one of our hubs or work remote and then just come to one of the big hubs when we when we have an offsite and that's why they built that massive uh corporate park in dallas Right. Mm -hmm. like, and so it makes that that model makes even more sense now where it's like, hey, you can live wherever you want, whether that's like where you grew up with your family, where your husband's job is, where your wife's job is, where your partner's job is, or, you know, where your kids have school, you know, whatever you want. And then we'll spend the money that we would have spent on an office like the 15, 16, 17, 18, even twenty thousand dollars a year per employee that these places spend to have office space on you, like getting set up at home, coming to more off sites, you know, being being more cohesive right and i think that it's really changing the way that you know work happens and it's an interesting time for me because i've i just started my own company like a month ago and like trying to it's an interesting time to do it right because everything is remote there is no person person on like in-person onboarding right yeah um yeah i think with i mean it'll be it'll be interesting you know this is is uh, throwaway word but um uh i think important to kind of follow the trends on the workforce too because yeah. there's a, a large slimming down right now and part of what i am, am curious to see is you know as as things in the economy pick back up is there going to be a one-to-one -one increase in employment or are they going to realize that these companies can do more with less um you know will they have more accountability to to um to a smaller number of employees because i think yeah. that's what you know I've, I've certainly seen a lot of these companies grow at scale and you know we've all sat in meetings where we're wondering like why are there so many people in this when <laughs> yeah. there's two or three that are like kind of executing on it so it's my big question is you know will workforces remain slimmed down after this and and if so you know what do you do what happens with those thousands of employees yeah i think it's i think it's a great time to be 
scaling a company and like you have a pretty like if 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 you and if you're growing the new company after this and decide you want to hire a few new whatever like you're going to have a very rich field to pick from probably um and that's the upside but the problem is is you make that point is the people that the past 10 years of their life they were doing the filler jobs at larger corporate companies that no longer make any sense like are they going to retrain and find the new work or are they going to be stymied for a very long time you know, mm -hmm. and some people might be old enough where it, you know, it's hard for a 55 year old that was, you know, doing something for 30 years to switch it up. And I, I think it's never too late for you to do something new. Right. But yeah, but I think even beyond, you know, not even just an aging workforce, it's kind of tough but time. But you think was it Airbnb laid off 25 percent of their staff and contractors yep. last week. And, you know, if you graduate of college and you're an events manager and experiences manager at that company for seven years, what do you pivot into? Because, yeah. you know, experiences and events are clearly going to be redefined for, for, for the near term. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of, a lot of unanswered questions right now. And my sister being, you know, I, I watched her Zoom graduation last Saturday from college. And so mm -hmm. we've talked ad nauseum about that and what she's going to do. And she has a very traditional liberal arts degree as well. So it's like, it's, it's one of the probably roughest job markets that she's ever like that anyone could ever experience. And she's going into mm -hmm. it with, you know, a, a non-technical degree, right. Which is like almost makes the heart you, you, you're in the hardest boat, right. Mm -hmm. Cause not only are the people that have your degree that have experience ahead of you, but also mm -hmm. like the people that, as we just talked about are displaced from other work are going to be ahead of those other people. And so I don't know, I, I think it's, it's a time for growth, right? Yeah. Yeah. And likely those people are going to be competing for the same salaries with yeah. greater experience. It's tough. Yeah. Well, we'll see how it goes. Um, has, has the new company adopted any sort of uh, systems that you didn't have in place before the pandemic uh, now that have like allowed easier communication and work from home, like remote work stuff? Um, we, I think it, we, we've more adopted new processes and ways of working. Um, so every morning at 9.15, Matt and I get on, talk through what's going on for the day. And then every morning at 9.30, we run through every active project, what the team's working on, who, what, the, what are the expectations of each team member, um, and wrap it up with like an email status on projects at the end of the day. Cool. And I think that's, um, again, when you're in, you're in a physical office, you can just have those quick conversations, those happenstance moments. Totally. Uh, these situations I've realized rely upon a much greater degree of, um, effective communication and yeah. clarity of communication. <laughs> it's everything. Um, you know, and I, I mean, just, I will, I'll take, and it's also because once you send someone down a path to do something, you don't just check in with them every 10 minutes. It's yeah. at the end of the day. And if they've gone down a whole different path, well, that's on me for not being clear on what the expectations were. Yeah. So we've gotten much, much more reliant on like Google docs, Google drive, you know, just mm -hmm. clearly outline expectations and like nuances yes. of what needs to be done. Um, and if you have a question, and, ask it, don't wait. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and, but it's not just question, ask it too. If like, if you feel like there is a lack of clarity, if you, if the way I'm communicating feedback is harsh or unclear, or you feel like it is demeaning, like raise that because we're in this new, uh, new time where, you can, it's much easier to intuit intention and emotion in person. It's much harder over a screen. And so I've been very, you know, um, 
explicit with my team. You know, if you feel like you're getting feedback delivered to you in a way that's unproductive, or you feel my tone is off, talk about those softer things because yeah. addressing those softer things, you know, will make it easier for everyone down the road. Yeah, and I think that echoes a lot what's been going on. And there are definitely some systems that, you know, you look at the the stocks that are surging right now, it's all the Zoom and the Basecamp and the mm-hmm. Slack, which makes sense, right? It's it's but I think the problem is is that unless you have good processes in place, as you mentioned, like the systems are useless anyways, right? So it's it's all about if everyone's on the same page, but if three people are using Basecamp and two decide to use Google Docs and one's on Slack, you're not gonna solve anything. Yeah. And that's easy with a team of 12. We yeah, can just kind of totally. say is what we're using and that's what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. You know, as you scale that up, of course, that that uh, you could have whole business units running in a different direction. Yeah. And so speaking of things that will change is that I thought one of the coolest um, ideas and, and pro- like concepts you had in your workspace in SF was this uh, like storefront in the front of the store where you're selling, please correct me if I'm wrong, but like merch, books, uh, different little like everything in between I saw it. It was like a really cool collection of stuff. Basically I'd find like the, the last time I saw a collection that good, it was like a MoMA museum store, right? It was like a really kind of <laughs> well, well curated the collection of like cool stuff I want to spend money on. Right. Um, how do you see that changing going forward with like everything with, you know, PPE? Cause I don't know if you want to bring random people into your office space. That's also your storefront every single day in the office, you know? Yeah. Um, well, it's not going to be a physical storefront for yeah. the short term. That's for sure. That's for yeah. sure. Um, you know, I think um, some of the core tenants, you know, we'll have to find new ways to 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 manifest those. You know, we one we make and sell our own merchandise, yeah. and um, that's so we can build our new company brand, but also so we have you know our designers have an outlet outside of client work to be able to create something and like see their work on a shirt that we sell. And, like, yeah. well, I see, you know, I, I saw someone wearing a new company hat in uh in the mission in san francisco didn't know the person i was like that's that's pretty fucking cool yeah that's great um, i love that and, yeah uh, um and so you know we're still going to create lines of clothing and we're still going to sell them it'll be online sure um, yeah we you know one of the things that we really um wanted to promote was you know organizations within our local community too and we partner with an organization called creativity explored um, they teach art to adults with learning disabilities. They have a beautiful yep. space in, in the mission here in San Francisco. And we sold the ceramics that their artists made. Yeah. Um, Amazing. And, textile right. artists made. and right. so it'll be finding a way of like, we'll move that online, but we're also, um, we're just about to, to, to launch. We did a custom line of merchandise um, in partnership with them that all yeah. the proceeds will be donated to Creativity Explored. So finding ways like that to still impact the community, you know, or things we want to do that were easier with the storefront and then now finding ways to do that yeah. remotely. Um, you know, I think it'll just be an evolution of what we're doing. Yeah, and when you first learned about that, I was like, that's really genius. I'm surprised that more people haven't. And I think it's catching on more and more. Like I've seen more and more mm-hmm. smaller companies be like, especially ones that have great branding to begin with, right? It's like, why not? You yeah. know? Um, and so kind of pivoting a little bit, um, in this current situation we all find ourselves in with Corona, where do you find peace and happiness in your current life? Is it the same as it was before? Is it different? Have you kind of, you know, anything new you've discovered along that journey? Hmm. Um, interesting question. Uh, I think where I've found peace oddly has been in like a lot of literature um 
I've really leaned into reading and and I think the topics that I've been reading are are, are emblematic of, of why I've chosen them at this time. Um, but I'm reading you know, Midnight in Chernobyl right now, which is about the Chernobyl disaster. Just finished. Just finished. Um, I'm adding that to my list right now. <laughs> amazing. Um, just finished the history of the Gulag. So you know the Soviet prison system from. There's a, there's, there's a there's a storyline here that you're following. <laughs> there is. Yeah. Um, I finished that just before that. I read The Only Plane in the Sky, which was um, which was the like oral history of 9/11. Um, wow. yeah. You know, and kind of fascinating taking this like incredibly known event, but walking through an oral history, what everyone was experiencing across the nation at that moment. Um, and it's fascinating because they start with uh, with the only man not on Earth. He was in the International Space Station. You know, it starts there and you just zoom in. Um, before that, I read uh, Say Nothing, which was about um, the troubles in Ireland, uh, which is fascinating as well, how these you know, members of the IRA essentially go from leading this this um, this political movement to becoming you know leaders in government in Ireland now. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of that is is reading through all of that is one fascinating. I love history. I love you know absorbing as much as I can, but um, just realizing that like shit can be a lot worse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like absolutely. We, yeah. What, what we experience now, like we're incredibly, I, I am, I know this is a very, it's not an easy time for anyone, but there are, there are, there is a large spectrum of, of how people are experiencing this. Yeah. Um, but you know, that literature and reading those other experiences has shed a big light in one, how other people have moved through times of trouble. Yeah. Um, but also like kind of reinforce the fact that it's not that bad. So kind of a question to go off that. Do you think that this pandemic was amplified due to the systems that exist now in society that didn't exist 20 years ago, mostly like social media, the way the news cycle works? Um, do you think those amplified what was going on and maybe made it, made it out to be worse than it is overall? Um, I guess anytime there's a very clear and scientifically proven like public health issue i don't yeah. think it's being over amplified for sure yeah um i but i think there is a global culture and media to you know increase ad revenue which is increased eyeballs which is increased engagement which is quick right snap yeah. headline to fully in and so mm -hmm. um do i think there are certain things that are over embellished yes yeah. Yeah. mitigated by i think selecting your news sources or being disciplined enough to have a range of news sources. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think it's a very serious public health issue that the yeah. public needs to be informed about, but you can ingest information on a wide spectrum of, uh, uh, you know, inciting panic versus, uh, um, communicating resolve and like logical steps forward. Yeah. I think what's different is that, you know, you think back to um, the Spanish flu, you know, and that, that was two, three years. You think back to the plague, that was four or 500 years that people lived with stuff like that. Yeah. I think the way in which we consume media and have gotten connected has brought about this immediacy of wanting to solve it. Yeah. Um, and that just doesn't play with the reality. And I think what is it, the, the fastest we've ever developed a vaccine was like MMR and that was four years of development. Yeah. And so it's just like, <laughs> I yeah, think it's, it's I think quick. it's edu educating the public on yeah. like actual time horizons is really important. For sure. But I think 
the nature of the way we consume and media and products and even like fast fashion, you know, people used to buy clothes and they'd last a year. Now you're buying like six things a season. I think that immediacy has trained people to expect something to, for sure, to to come to the solution quicker. And social media is the gasoline napalm bomb that, that is on everything, right? It's like that immediacy, that click rate, you know, everything in that vein, dating apps, uh, you know, I think, as you just said, like you're at a point now where if there's an influencer on Instagram and they're pushing out a new bikini, you can click on the post picture and it brings you right to a payment page where you can double click your iPhone and takes a, like a, a snapshot of your face and then pages a credit card. And then two days later, it shows up in your mailbox. Like that's, that's that t- five years ago, if someone told me that I'd be like, that's cool, but I don't know if it's happening that soon. And then if you told someone 20 years ago, you could do that. They'd be like, what, what's, what's an influencer, you yeah. know? Um, they, they had their their, their <laughs> catalog that they circle items in and sent in a, a check in the mail for sure. But that's what I remember doing. Like I, I picked out my my birthday present as like a seven year old by looking at the Lego catalog. The Lego catalog that came that year always came like a month before my birthday. And I knew it's like I know I get to pick something in here that's my birthday gift, right? And I had things circled and like notes like which ones the Star Wars one, the city one, the space one, right? And that that was that was what I did. And nowadays it's like you can order on Amazon and it can show up in two hours right yeah. and then next year it'll be by drones and then the year after that it'll like it's gonna materialize in your kitchen yeah you know and then, yeah comparing with biology and science yeah and they, they don't operate on those time horizons no there, there's a great um his name is naval ravikant he's a like investor by trade but he's more of like a philosopher like really interesting thinker um definitely worth listening to some of his podcasts uh they're very short like 15 minutes he like tries to like deduce information as like efficient as possible which i really appreciate um, and he has this saying, I think it was stolen from Nassim Taleb, um, who's a really good author, good writing of stuff, like Fooled by Randomness and, and other books in that, in that vein. But uh, it said, like, it's like, don't give me the story, give me the tweet, don't give me the tweet, I already know it anyways. Like, we're getting to this point where it's like, no one really wants to sit down and read long-form literature anymore. And I think that, mm-hmm. like you, I've been reading more and more the past few months, and I really forgot, it's kind of sad to say, but like, I forgot how much I liked reading, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's easy to get caught up in that. Um, and I, I, I know you like reading paper. Um, we've talked about that ad nauseum and I just, I switched over to the, the reading on the iPad thing just from a, I was traveling so much. I just couldn't carry that many books. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but the one thing I found that was kind of the bittersweet other side of that is that I enjoy this ability for me to reference different books and write notes all over them and be able to search them quickly. Right. And so from a research perspective, Excuse me, it's great, but there are some books I still just want, like a paper copy to sit in bed, like sunlight coming in the window, you know, especially fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but would you say, for the most part, your your genre of reading is like historical nonfiction? Yeah, largely historical nonfiction, but I certainly will like throw in an uh, an escapist uh, fiction book every now and then. I love um, Orhan Pamuk; he's a Turkish author, um, and uh, you know, he just has these beautiful way of describing what would be everyday life but in these like nuanced and emotional ways and really like interweaving aspects of Turkish culture um and kind of that east meets west uh um he's still alive you know he writes from 1925 to modern day um but uh I'll do some I'll do some fiction um and, and rereading, you know, what I I thought were classics, you know, like Crime and Punishment or Love in the Time of Cholera or, um, yeah. you know, Milan Kundera, um, I love Italo Calvino. Um, 
he's just got these fantastic escapist stories um, that that kind of play into some of your childhood tendencies, yeah. but written in a way that kind of pull you back in as an adult. Yeah, there were some books that I uh, that I read and reread more recently um, that I read when I was younger, and one of them was actually one that Brian Collins gave me, which was um, James Curse's Finite Infinite Games. Mm. Um, which is all about game theory, which like, you know, me being like the super nerd I am, like super into that. And then it's ironic that around the same time, I also watched for the first time, I don't know how, but the, the 2001 Oscar winning movie, The Beautiful Mind uh, with Russell mm-hmm. Crowe about James, uh, John Nash. Um, and it was, it was kind of fascinating, like how much parallels there were. And I started realizing that a lot of what's going on with this pandemic and how people are reacting to it is really game theory. And it's like John Nash's equilibrium, which is the idea that the best thing for each individual is also the best thing for the community as a whole, I think is really an important thing to take home for what's going on right now. It's like, I think the best thing that we can do as society is not only what's best for each individual, which is health, safety, and economic you know, sustainability, but also that's what's best for everyone and the community as a whole, right? Um, and I'd find it interesting to see, do you think that it's going to take, I I've, I've seen people cl- like proclaim, you know, there's going to be no economic downturn. It's going to take five years. It's going to take five months. Like, where do you kind of sit in there? Like, do you think we're going to have a longer recovery or? Well, I mean, I think, uh, I'm not being an expert in this field at all. I'm just, if I think about it as the consumer that I am, yeah. right. Um, you know, people talking about quick recoveries, or it's going to take forever. If I just put like, how am I as a, um, fairly informed, uh, somewhat rational, but still play, you know, we'll give into my emotions individual, like how yeah. would I react, you know, and I would react by shoring up my expenses right now, cutting out things that are superfluous, starting to save cash, um, For sure. you know, and knowing that I'll indulge in, I'll start to indulge in things that I enjoy, but on a limited scale, like, am I going to go and dine in at a restaurant in the next month? Probably not. No. Like go out and like pick up food that I really enjoy and take it to a beach and eat. Sure. Sounds lovely. I did that, <laughs> did that, la- did that last weekend with my wife. Wouldn't yeah. have done it a month ago, you know? Yeah, for so sure. Those, those steps. Um, am I going to like go to a mall and buy clothing or buy cologne or buy a piece of jewelry? Yeah. Not in the near term. Um, will I order like a pack of underwear and some t-shirts online? Yeah. Yeah, I will. Yeah. So I think like it's, it's, I just in terms of the steps that I personally would take, I think it's mm-hmm. going to be a while. I think yeah. it's going, and I think when people do it, it's going to be these moments. They're going to say, Oh, I'm going to go out to a restaurant. You know, before you wouldn't even think twice about going yeah. out to dinner. It becomes an occasion again, right? Five times a week, it becomes an occasion. I think that's yeah. what travel is going to be. Yes. People are going to be like, yeah. well, okay, they're going to audit their destinations. They're going to stay closer to home and they're going to say, all right, we're going to make, this is our trip mm-hmm. rather than, Hey, you know, my wife and I moved to California a couple of years ago. Uh, there were times where on a Thursday we'd say, Hey, let's, let's get out. Let's go to town for the weekend on a Friday. Yeah, and we sure. go, that's not going to happen for at so least wow. a year, yeah. you know? So I think thinking about it that way, I do think it's going to be more paced out. I think it's going to be occasional based. And I think that brands in kind of communicating to a customer need to understand that it's like it's not about just getting back into your routine and like let's yeah. bring back good old days it's about it's about what you said how can we communicate like we understand that this is 
a decision that you're making now that you yep. didn't make before. We understand that you have concerns that you didn't have before. For sure. And we need to communicate and alleviate those and still create a space that you feel like you're getting away from it all. So that's, sure. I think, uh, as a long-winded answer to your question, but I think it's it's a little longer out than... than yeah, I would, I would agree to you. And the two points I'll make is that I think the next, like, uh, whatever that um, Jenner sister... Pepsi commercial that destroyed Pepsi for like two years with like where she hands the Pepsi to the policeman. Like someone mm -hmm. will make an advertising or marketing gaffe with this pandemic, trying to push people back into doing something that should, doesn't work anymore. And I'm curious to see who it'll be. It'll probably be a cruise company. Um, <laughs> well, but the uh, issue there is, yeah. like, you know, people can die. Yeah, that, that's, that's like the thing, right? That, you make a tasteless commercial. Like, yeah. absolutely, like you play on racial tensions and that was completely tone deaf yeah. but you know pushing certain things in this situation could result in people Dying. not coming on the other side of it yeah and then the second part of that is i think that you know there was this trend i was following that there was i forget the name of it but there was this this, this hotel group that made a small offset where they were trying to make uh kind of rural places to go and escape new york city and like the catskills and the adirondacks mm -hmm. up in like that and i think like those are going to become bigger like especially in the Bay Area, like the places, because there are many beautiful places right outside the Bay Area, you know? Yeah. And I think that we're going to see this renaissance of like the local bread and, like bed and breakfast, which I, I love. Like personally, like I, I'm happy to see that, right? Um, and I think travel for me for, the, for, the, for, the, for probably the next year will be uh, like the absolutely essential business trips that, that will arise probably starting in like, I don't know, I'd say late August, early July, probably when they start coming up again. We'll see though, things could change. Mm -hmm. And then also like I haven't seen my mom in like three, four months, I'd love to see her in Boston, you know, like, so stuff like that. But I think that's, that's definitely a lower impact trip. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I flew out here to Seattle last week, um, to move here because my stuff is in a pod and like on the flight, they don't let people board the plane before they're wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. And if you take it off in the middle of flight, unless you're eating, obviously they, they yell at you. Um, mm -hmm. and for a six hour flight, it's not, not the most enjoyable thing, but I understand it. Right. And I'm, and I'm happy it's there. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I think I think that you know PPE is here to stay, right? Um, and that's why I decided to invest in like a more comfortable mask. Because I'm like, I my friend, I sent him. There was this company in Canada called O2, and they made this really cool mask. Um, and it's like hard plastic shell with a replaceable filter that has like a very soft silicone lining that not only makes a great seal but also it looks good. Like it works well. Um, mm. And it was basically priced so that when they sell you one, they could also donate a couple to the local. You know, it's, it's like 80 bucks, which is like, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a good amount of money. But also it's like, here's a sustainably made like lifetime warranty, something where you can honestly use for years just by replacing the filters. And I was like, this makes sense. My friends are like, you're crazy spending that money, much money on this thing. Like, we're not gonna have to wear a mask for like after a few months of this. I was like, you are wrong. <laughs> I was like, PPE is your stay yeah. for quite a while. And also it's like, it'll come to a choice where I, I kind of realized that even if people stop using it, there are some places where I think that like, a PPE mask will probably be in my backpack and like my everyday carry probably for the next few years. I already have one like in my jacket and yeah. my running vest, like for just sure. keep, just, it, keep it in there. I think, I think for public transportation, like that's going to be a, almost a necessity. Uh, flights. Absolutely. I can see myself maybe like on the longer international flights when I'm sleeping and certain scenarios, like not wearing it. But I think that like, I don't know. I just think it's not, it's amazing to think, but I also, you know, my background's aerospace and talking to a lot of friends who work on, work for Boeing, work for Airbus, you know, there's this interesting shift now where 
they're Boeing has a new plane in development right now, the 797, and Airbus has a new plane in development as well. And they both basically are going back to the drawing board about how air circulates in them now because they're trying to make they're trying to realize that like people yeah. people want, and this is what yeah. I've been told, right? So let's let's hope it's actually happening, right? So people it want the selling point now. Yeah, exactly, right. But that, that's the thing. It's like obviously, if we learn from at least Boeing's sake, like they look at pro, like profit first and then and then customer second, but mm -hmm. uh, safety second at least. Um, but it's true, right? I think I think that we're gonna see new ways. Um, you know, it's like they shut the New York City subway from what's it like one a.m. to five a.m. now to like completely disinfect all trains. Um, and I kind of thought to myself like that wasn't happening beforehand, right? Like, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. I think there are many things that are gonna come from this. You know, in the grocery store three blocks from my place in Lower Queen Anne, um, they have a hand washing statement when you're washing the door, and it's like it's not it's not required, but most people do. At least there's big things of hand sanitizer. I think it's gonna be pretty standard. Right. Um, there was a dude in the store just walking around sanitizing the handles to the freezer cabinets. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's just going to be pretty standard. Um, yeah. You know, I, I like I like this idea in a grocery store, especially where um, gloves are the hard one. Right. Because gloves are incredibly basically impossible to recycle, especially if they're latex. Right. Um, and I'm really looking forward to someone coming up with a novel solution for like gloves that are easy to disinfect that people don't have to like buy boxes of and just keep throwing because mm -hmm. I think about the amount of trash that's being created from PPE right now. And it's, there's no, there's nothing a recyclable mask. Right. But well, it, <laughs> and even beyond that, you know, San Francisco, California had pioneered to charge for your back. Right. And you bring your own reusable ones and they've paused all of that and you're actually in grocery stores are not allowed to bring your reusable bags in right now yeah so reversal know, completely yeah <laughs> yeah and and we'll see how that how that trend goes and i think there are some things that i that you know i'm sorry my mom about this that some things will be here to stay and some things will evolve but i think ppe mm -hmm. and a lot of that stuff is is here to stay for a, a long time um and, you know, I think talking, because my, my background before I went to Collins was retail, right? I spent a few years in like retail strategy and talking to my, one of my mentors in that field, he, you know, retail has been on death's door for, death's doorstep for a while now, right? And this is kind of the nail in the coffin for a lot of retail. Um, and I honestly see like um, the more lucrative businesses, I think Lululemon is a great example where they, they, you know, Lululemon has something like 50 stores and SF downtown and, the, and like Silicon Valley, right? Uh, you know, all over the place. But I think it's going to come down to where they'll have like a couple major brand stores that'll also be warehouses for people to do like d day of delivery of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the way that we're kind of transitioning to. Like I, I started getting my groceries delivered for the most part. Like I'll run to the store if I like forgot something. Or if I need something quickly, but for the most part, like I'm doing Whole Foods delivery because it's, it's the same thing. Yeah, uh, it's really nice. I think the nicest thing is that I don't get overwhelmed easily. But I think when you're like trying to shop for like a week and a half worth of food, it's easy to like look at your cart and be like, I think of everything and like throw extra stuff in there. But when you're online, sitting on your computer, you can see everything visually. You're like, oh, okay, like this. That's too much. That's too little. Like oh, mm -hmm. I'm missing this, and that's nice, right? Yeah. Um, and also it's time consuming. Like I do love, I, I love going to a good farmer's market, like picking out your produce. Like that's, that's a nice routine. I, I look forward to getting back into, but for the majority of shopping, like, you know, I don't have, I don't really care, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it'll be again, like probably more occasional for the basics and things that you, um, don't need that time or like 
uh, investment and like going out into society, yeah. it'll probably become much more you know comfortable ordering online, and then you'll have those occasional moments that feel, which I think is you'll see in retail. I think you're going to see, you know, just heard what was it last week? Nemo Marcus filed for bankruptcy. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know you have the the gap like teetering or restructuring some sure. of their debts so that they so that they don't have to file for Chapter Eleven. And I think you're going to see a lot of these mass diversified retailers struggle, mm -hmm. but I do think there'll be a space for specialty retail, you know, for sure. Absolutely. Um, Always. you know, your, your specialized jewelry stores, your perfume stores, your things that are like, those become occasional and yeah. you <laughs> want that experience. You mean like Soho in a nutshell, right? So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, minus the even, brand stores, right? Yeah. But even within that, there's going to be more about like the knowledge and the expertise that an associate can bring to you, for sure. you know, right. and a lot of those mass ones are like, oh yeah, you want this? Like, here's this thing, you know, here's mm -hmm. this rather than, okay, great. Well, what color profile do you like? What scent do you like? What's the fit that you like? And so For sure. and I think you'll see a lot of those remain and mm -hmm. they'll still struggle, but I think the other mass ones will struggle. They'll have a harder time. For sure. And, and I think this, this means that places and businesses that were set up and were pioneering direct to consumer applications before this are now even better poised for future success. Like I think Tesla is a great example that they basically can deliver anyone in the United States a car to their door, right? Mm -hmm. And they've been doing that for years now. And you think about that, that's a massive ad ad advantage, especially during a time like this, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you think about for the future, like they have it ready to go. But if you imagine Ford trying to do that, right? It's like, it's, it's not gonna happen, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think there's, another, yeah. Yeah, there's another startup called Shop Move based in SF and they launched via Kickstarter. But what the idea was is let's make a store that's starting out. I don't know if you let me know if you're familiar with this or not, but um, I'm not, no. they basically said, let's make the hundred most common staples in an American household from a supermarket, right? And let's find local producers around the country to make them for us and like white label them. So it's like, this is the move honey, but it's made from this like bespoke um, beekeepers in Vermont that make it fresh. And so like everything is like fresh and organic, sustainably sourced, but it's like one person's basically collecting all that for you. And it's all like white labeled under them. So it's like, you'll get, you'll get their steak. And it's like, oh, this steak is grass fed beef from this pasture in California. And they're like, they bought the whole pasture. Right. And so it became this really cool thing where essentially they had, they basically built vertical integration for mom and pop stuff to be allowed for ease of use. And they deliver it right to your door and they were just ready to go. Right, they they were they launched literally two weeks. I got my email to like come and shop, show shopping before like the first you know real shutdown happened. So like they were like yeah. ready to be there. And the thing is, is they just are sold out of everything. You know, they they blew through their entire stock for the next year because they didn't anticipate this happening. Because you didn't realize like, yeah. oh okay. But so then the question is, is something like that actually sustainable? For you sure. Know, if right? you if you put so much on quality and these local sources, yeah, and you can't deliver the product people that want it right now, you know that that's its own issue. Yeah, it's that balance between demand and quality, and you know, sustainable customer experience. There's that fascinating market trend, right, where it's like just say you have the beekeepers in Vermont in this example, and they don't can't make enough honey for everyone, so then they bring in beekeepers from California and Texas and stuff, and at that point, it's like. You eventually become like the next just three six five white label that's pulling yeah, beekeeper. And so yeah, and so that's that's the idea, right? So if and it brings up a good point, right? It's like if you want to maintain that, you eventually have to either raise your prices or limit it to the public, right? Yeah, and that's I mean that that's a lot with any product or service based delivery. I mean, even thinking about us at the new company, you know, we 
we probably turn down two thirds of the work that, that has come to us. And the reason is, is because there's a certain level of, of quality and talent. And sure. it's really easy to say yes. And well, what do you do? Do you start to diminish your brand? You start to diminish your quality. You start to diminish what you're putting out into the world. Yeah. And so it's been a conscious decision not to. And the, the, the realization there is a lot of these companies always operate on like, how much can we make? Mm-hmm. And we're much more of like, how much can we regulate the quality of what's out in the world? For sure. Right. Um, and I think it's that return to craft, right? It's the return to the importance of things made well with purpose. And only working with people you want to and having full control and continually making great things that I think will define the future of like the next generation of companies to really like make great things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's interesting. I'm, I'm sure like, I guess I'm curious, like of the ones you turned down, I'm sure there are a few of them being in SF that were like startups you'd never heard of that just got a bunch of seed money that were trying to like get some flashy branding, even though their product was like shit. Right. Or, I mean, or didn't exist yet. Yeah, or, for sure. Um, or, you know, in those situations, a lot of the times it comes down to, you know, they have $10 and it costs $100, yeah. you know? And for everyone that we say no to, there's another firm that'll pick up that $10, you for know? Sure. And yeah. we'd rather, that's fine. Like, it, it, it's, that exists for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other ones that really understand the value of the services that we provide and wanting to invest in that. And it's more of a dialogue and a conversation. and maybe we it was ten dollars initially and we come to a place where it's eight dollars now yeah i'm using arbitrary numbers yeah for obviously. sure yeah. but uh um but you've been able to build a rapport and a, and a dialogue and a conversation yeah. and that's the foundation that you build something good on absolutely and that's and i think that's where i have a friend who has made a name for himself in creating products launch them on kickstarter and there and his rules like that to be novel they can't be like something i buy from a factory in china and just sell like yes to be something mm-hmm. new and he's fascinated because he's learned, he's like, I asked him, uh, I was like, what have you learned the most? And he's from Cameroon. So like he grew up like, you know, being entrepreneurial in his own, you know, village. Right. And then he's just like, I've learned more about pricing techniques than I could have ever thought I could have imagined. Like pricing mm-hmm. is everything. You yeah. don't think about it that much. And right? reward incentives, all of that. For sure. Right? Yeah. Um, and just today I was, before I started this podcast, I was talking with a friend who's trying to start a startup in, in the UK and they have a, a product that potentially could help with, you know, putting things back online post pandemic and like pricing wise, I was like, guys, like you, if, if you, if you have the patent on this idea and it's this good and it works, like you need to charge 20 times what you're charging, right? you're the only one that can do it. Right. Mm-hmm. And also it's like, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be able to pay your bills if you charge like, you know what you're charging now. Like people, I think people really realize it's like, it's one of the think like, oh yeah, there's two of us. We have a great idea. We're making great things. Like that's how much it costs. It's fine. But you realize like in order to make the company and scale it, like that's, it's not, it's not reasonable. Right. Yeah. And having that, I mean, again, coming back to even how Matt and I have structured our, our company, our business, you know, we, before we even opened the door on our business, we went through pricing strategy, pricing scenarios, like mapped out three years of what could be growth. Yeah. And you know, staff growth, employee headcount, all of that mm-hmm. to figure out what pricing strategy made sense, um, which gives you, us, or anyone that does that a leg up and something to stand on when for someone sure. says, like, it's too expensive. And you say, well, actually, it's what it costs for us to, to function and deliver mm-hmm. these services. I think yeah. a lot of businesses um, that that don't do that or jump into it too quickly are like, yeah, you're, yeah, 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 cut it, yeah. you know, whatever. And that's works in the short term, but you can't scale that. 
No. And not only that, but also I think, you know, the companies that are going to get the best talent in the future are the ones that also share it back. Right. And, and, you know, I, I know, I know you do it and a lot of people that we've worked with do it where you kind of, you know, make sure there's a level of profit sharing with your employees because that's how it should be. Right. You, you want people to have buy-in literally and figuratively. Right. It's like mm-hmm. you want them to be not only invested in the work they're doing, but also understand that like the more good work is done, that that is done leads to more good work in the future, which leads to more profitability for the company to help grow and get larger clients and more and more interesting projects, but also leads to more financial security for them, right? Yeah, and to think about the decisions they're making, not through just the lens of does this look good, but does yeah. this make sense for the company? Can we be more efficient in what we're doing? Can we be more effective? Sure. Um, because thinking like that uh, expands into other aspects of the business. You know, I, I want an employee that will question like, Hey, I think you scope too much time here, or I think I think this is we're not charging enough here, or I think we overcharge. This is something that's too expensive. Yeah. Because they understand how the workflow goes, and we can become more efficient and effective. And you know, ultimately, it, decentralizing all of that from being done by myself or Matt makes it a more resilient company. Sure. Yeah. Cool. Well, I know you, I'm gonna be conscious of your time, um, so I'm gonna wrap this up with uh, a few questions that I usually end with, uh, and you can give your answer and as quick or as long form as you want. Um, uh, if you had a billion dollars that you couldn't spend on your family or yourself, what problem would you try and solve? See, that's, that's tough because I don't know if I'd ever just come into a billion dollars. Assume you right? do, yeah. <laughs> uh, but just like typically people that, that accumulate that wealth, they kind of follow a path of passion sure. and interest that leads them there. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think there's a ton of issues that I'm passionate about, but I don't know if they merit spending a billion dollars on. You know, I care about financial sure. literacy and kind yeah. of increasing individuals' ability to like understand their financial situation and yeah. how to kind of become more fiscally responsible as, as they as they go. I think, you know, investing in education programs around that for people that are in in you know, elementary or middle or high school. For you sure. just don't get taught. It's important. Yeah. Um, other, other things that could probably benefit from that more? Yes. Um, but that's just something that I, I, you know, personally um, I'm passionate about. Um, yeah. So speaking of financial literacy, that's the note I'm writing to myself to add in the show notes right now. But uh, I was talking to a friend about this the other day that it's amazing how many how much I've learned in the past four years since I graduated college about finances and IRAs and stock options and taxes that it's amazing that this was never like, it should just be a one credit class in high school. They teach you when you're a junior or senior, basically be like, hey, like basically interest can kill you or make you like fine, right? Like it's- I mean, what is Einstein, <laughs> Einstein called it the, the eighth or ninth wonder of the world, compound interest, I think. And that's something I try to do with my employees too. You know, when we do talk about profit sharing programs and talk about, you know, retirement, I'll, I'll, I will like put a plug in there of what compound interest does and how to start thinking about it earlier. For and sure. I think that is a deficit of society in general, that just having that context that would generate so much more wealth and stability beyond yeah. what exists today. Um, that you know, it's an area that I just I constantly see underrepresented in terms of curriculum. Sure, and but also you realize the people at the top that are running banks don't want people to be educated with these things because right. that that takes less money at the top for them. Right. Right. Which and, yeah. you know, uh, the, the catch twenty two there. The irony there is that if more people knew, they would have more customers. 
For sure, you know? right? And then you know? it'd, be, it'd be morning um, for everyone, right? And the, and, yeah. the, and the ironic thing, I hate telling people this, but, you know, people always, because I tell people, my friends this, but it's like, you know who gets the best interest rates? People with the most amount of money, right? Mm -hmm. And it's basically the more money you make, the more big banks want to borrow that money from you and then give you a portion of the money they make off of investing that money. So essentially, like, the more money you have, the more money you make, and the more your money makes, and it's just a continuous yeah. cycle, right? And it's, it's your it's, lower risk, and yeah. you won't default, and <laughs> yeah. they write banks, you know, write yeah. off a chunk of of higher risk for sure mortgages and, and, and loans. So yeah, yeah, it's a it's a deeply ingrained mm -hmm. part of our society, unfortunately. But yeah. I think investing and unraveling some of that or education knowledge in yeah. that area would go a long way. And I and I've been working on a, a video, um, because I do release YouTube videos around time about how basically I when I first got to New York, like I put a ton of money on credit cards like I could not pay back. Right. And then you learn very quickly, it's like, oh, you know, those little lunches here and there, this thing here yeah. and there, like they add up really fast. And then also yeah. it's like, it's really easy to get caught out by a credit card bill. And you're like realizing that, you know, your max high interest savings account, savings account that's normal, it gives you 1.7% APR, but a credit card can destroy you at 29% APR, you know? So that's, <laughs> yeah. And like two months of that can, can, you know, yeah. set you on a course for two years, you know? And yeah. I, I mean, that's something that I've always been passionate about. I started actively investing and when I was uh, when I was 17, but I think part of it came from my parents. You know, ever since yeah. as young as I could remember, half of anything we earned or received on a birthday, and yeah. half of any of it, they invested it. It just didn't matter, and and yeah. that was when uh, when when I turned 18. They were like, "Here's what you've been saving half of. Like, go out into the world now." And it was just like it just kind of set up this mentality and this way of thinking of you know you only have this much to spend rather than this whole portion. And that's something that has, has both, you know, been helpful, but it's not a way of thinking that I disciplined myself into doing. It's something my parents had the foresight to do, you For know? Sure. So that's, a, that's honestly amazing. I've never really heard of that before. Um, and now I kind of wish it happened. I, mean, I love my parents, right? Like nothing has <laughs> that, but do you think, no, yeah, knowing that kids are most likely on your future horizon, do you think that's something that you want to practice with your own kids as well? I think to some degree, I don't yeah. know to, to what that means, yeah. um, you know, but absolutely an idea of high of, financial literacy, you know, yeah, high financial literacy and fiscal responsibility. And, you know, I'm not going to, I've listened to some podcasts of, of some economists that like go deep into economic theory with their kids when they're like six and seven years old. I'm not going to go that far, yeah. but a basic understanding of, you know, you have decisions that you make with yeah. money that lead into multiple directions and you should understand mm -hmm. what those are. Yeah, I, uh, this is kind of a tangent, but also I think, I think life's about choice, right? Um, and most things are choice, even if people don't realize they're a choice, right? Um, and I got invited back to my alma mater last year because I taught this class for freshman engineers to basically like help them, you know, come in and learn how to like survive engineering school essentially because at the time my school had a 23 percent uh graduation rate through five years from start which is abysmal it just shows like not only how hard it is how many people realize like hey i don't want to spend as much time on work right but uh they asked me to talk about the fact that like i was the only one uh, from their program to graduate in the past 10 years that didn't go work in defense uh or aerospace and they were just like super curious about that and my basically my, my only goal my thesis was like you don't have to go work in defense 
like I'll say it six mm -hmm. times over and over again, but like, you don't have to go and do that. Like, cause you're, you're intelligent enough to be here. You're probably very creative. Like go look at the other side of things. Like I'm sure you'd probably like the fine arts, the design, the marketing, the branding. Like those are things that most people never get experience to, but as soon as you try it, you're like, holy shit. Like mm -hmm. I love this stuff, you know? Uh, and I'm glad I had the foresight of my career counselor at the time. And she's like, you know, you don't have to work in defense. Right. And I was like, Oh, that's a good point. I didn't think about that, you know, but you just, mm -hmm. and that's the choice thing, right? It's like after school, everyone I knew was going to work for NASA or SpaceX or Boeing. And it's like, it's, a, it, there's a choice there, obviously, but it's, you just do what everyone else is doing. Cause that's what you think is the best thing to do. When in reality, it's good to stop and think and be like, huh, what do I actually want here? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and going off with, you know, your parents, uh, next question is, is there a story that your family and parents had to tell about you from when you were younger? Uh, not really. I mean, it was a lot of, uh, I would be walking in one direction, looking in another, and I would run into walls. Uh, that's one that is constantly repeated. I also used to have an obsession with electrical cords, extension cords. <laughs> Why is and that? To the, I, I loved them. And so they would literally give me bundles of extension cords for a birthday. And I would want nothing more than to plug them into outlets all around the house and daisy chain them together. And that was it. Like just, That's just amazing. Like, as long as I could get them. And I mean, yeah, hindsight, my parents were like, probably shouldn't just let you play with the extension cords <laughs> all around the house at like three, four years old. But at the same time, it was like, Two bucks for a birthday present. Can't beat it. <laughs> so what, what do you think that was? Is that the fascination of like moving a source from one place to another? Like what was the fascination I, there? I think just general curiosity. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, something like building things and creating yeah. things and um, just general curiosity. You know, there's like pictures of me. My parents would find me like in our dishwasher with like a hammer. And they're just sitting in the dishwasher just tapping on the dishwasher. <laughs> Again, not the best. Probably have like a small kid like crawled inside of a dishwasher. But yeah, it's just a general curiosity. It's kind of like how I try to go through. I think that's part of why I love reading and yeah. the literature, the books that I listed off. Is just like, you know, you can keep your purview here very easily, or you can kind of expand yeah. it out a bit. And that actually reminds me of uh, my sister gave her dissertation oh, two weeks ago, and it's like my sister and I've always been close, but like it's definitely a thing where we're still at that age where it's like. I don't really, we don't really talk about that stuff with me. You know, like I think in a few years it'll be definitely more common, but I'd never heard a, a, like a scent of what her decision was, nor did she want to talk about it with me. And then I listened to it and I was like, wow, this is actually really insightful. But her, she wrote an entire paper on why like reintroducing like play for people of all ages is really important. And this idea of like being creative and being able to make mistakes and being able to try new things and just being fascinated and building like is so lost in modern society, especially among adults that like it's really important for us to bring that back. Um, I think it takes that stuff takes time for and sure again we've been conditioned to, to move very quickly and not mm -hmm. take that time yeah it's like why why take the time when you could just use the template that already exists online so you could get that H&M sweater you want so badly earlier like you know come on Steve mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um, next question is uh, what is the last time that you felt truly inspired to the point where like it just kind of hits you so hard that you just felt like you you couldn't do anything else but like that one thing. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I this is not a, a cop out answer, um, <laughs> but I, I don't. 
in the same way that I don't have moments that like stop me in my tracks of like this is really awful. Mm-hmm. I'm really trying to think of the last one I had that was like this is just truly inspirational. I think the closest thing for me is that I, when I feel that way, um, I know very vividly like the last time I went to the ballet, I felt that way. Interesting. I think you know for me it's the there's something about the 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 dedication and the rigor and the training and the practice, not just of one person, but of like 30 people to do everything in unison and to have it like it feel you're watching something that feels filmic. Mm -hmm. I think that's the, the, those types of experiences and, and witnessing those types of things that I think it has to do with seeing someone so dedicated and, um, uh, excelling in a craft yeah. they are the moments that I'm truly inspired to say that's like, cause, cause you, 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 not that they know what it takes, but I feel like I know what it takes to get there. And yeah. it just like, you know, you get the like chills down your back. You're like, wow, how'd they do that? Yeah. I, uh, I feel that with performances especially, but I think with me and this is always super weird, but I found these mugs. This is a random story, but I had these mugs at the store in Portland, Oregon back in like 2016 and they're like beautiful handmade mugs, like and they and they make them by hand, but they look like this thing like a machine would make. Mm-hmm. And like I understand, and they're expensive, they're like forty bucks a mug, which is kind of ludicrous when you think about it. But you know, guaranteed for life, made in the USA. But like every time I'm drinking tea out of that, I I, I think about that. I think about like someone spent their entire life to get to a point where they could make this mug look like this. And I like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that, as we talked about earlier, the love of craft is something that I think is a very common thing in the design community that we're trying to, you know, it, there's never a limit to how much we can have. It's like more and more, it's fine, more, bring more, you know? Yeah. And that's also why I love working for Brian Collins. I think he's a, he's a good example of someone that like loves that level of craft, you know? Um, just like more, more, mess is more was his saying, right? Yeah. Um, I think the craft where you can, you can pull out so many different like end results depending on how you approach that craft. Like this is, I, I, I got a couple minutes left, but yeah. another topic, time and topic but sure. i'm a very big uh like whiskey lover yeah part of like Absolutely. scotch iris yeah. and you take the exact same core ingredients mm-hmm. and the way in which you approach that and create it and like yeah. put your methodology to it you get something completely different yeah uh and i just i love that i think that's fascinating yeah and so and that's obviously something that we'll talk about another time but to get you out of here on the last question um if you could send a single push notification to everyone's phone in a given area, what would it say and where would it be? I wouldn't. I think you'll get too many push notifications as it is. <laughs> I appreciate that. Genuinely, that's, that's probably the best response I've ever gotten from that question. And, and then let me ask the reverse. Like if, if then if, if you could have a billboard say one thing on like the busiest highway leading into San Francisco, like what would you want that to say? As someone that like would see you in their morning drive, you know? Um, <laughs> one thing you're making you're making me we should end on the last one I love <laughs> just end on that's the best answer you've gotten and then to, to end it would have been great uh, I can I do that we'll, we'll fix it in you post got me. you, know, you got me um <laughs> Yeah. Well, that sounds good to me. Well, thank you for giving me 90 minutes of your day. I know your time is valuable and uh, I appreciate you for coming on.
thanks. This is, this is this has been fun. I hope you all very much enjoyed this conversation with Seth Morazka. As always, you can find me on social media at Rob Auchincloss or at robauchincloss.com. You can find Seth online at Seth Morazka. And that's pretty much it. You can also find him at his company's website, thenewcompany.com. Or I believe it's new.company. It's also an option. I hope you all have a fantastic rest of your day. Goodbye. Thank you.